Theodore Roosevelt's daughter, Alice Roosevelt Longworth, once famously said, if you can't say something nice about somebody, come over here and sit by me. That might serve as a great introduction to our next little brief bit of follow-up on an obituary we did last week on Jack Welch. We said last week we may have a few more words to say about him, and, and we do. Only these come from Joe Nocera, writing in Bloomberg.com, who said, I know it's uncouth to speak ill of the dead, but Jack Welch's effect on American capitalism was too destructive to go unnoticed. Joe Nocera noted that Welch, who died last week at age 84, was lionized as a business icon while running General Electric from 1981 to 2001 for building the world's most valuable company. But Welch's focus was entirely on the stock price. Everything else became secondary. In his 20-year tenure, GE's total return was about 5,200%, double that of the S&P 500. Because of that success, the path Welch trod became the path every other CEO trod as well. They, too, began obsessing over shareholders, putting employees, vendors, and even customers behind. Take that to its logical extreme and you get Facebook, or Enron for that matter. Thanks to accounting tricks, Welch had an uncanny knack for beating Wall Street's projections by a penny every quarter. That search for quick profits led GE's financial arm, holding risky loans that eventually turned toxic long after Welch was gone. So, when you see pharmaceutical companies raising the price of drugs to unconscionable levels, when companies cut back on research and development to satisfy Wall Street, when CEOs routinely make 40 to $50 million a year, you now know whom to blame. And The Economist, like Bloomberg, a business publication, noted in its article on him that there's no denying that Mr. Welch was a towering figure who helped jolt America, Inc. out of its complacent 1970s. At times, he may have shaken too hard. On March 4th, the current boss, Larry Culp, observed that Mr. Welch had changed the business landscape as we know it. He did not say whether that was for better or worse. You know, if we're going to talk about viruses, and we are going to do a bit of that, we should note some good news on, on that front. Uh, Last week, the Democratic Republic of Congo discharged the last patient confirmed to have Ebola, raising hopes that it has contained an outbreak that killed 2,264 people. Now, that's not as bad as how many people have succumbed to the current coronavirus uh, epidemic, but uh, two-thirds of the people that got Ebola died. We don't really know what the source of Ebola virus was. We think bats. We think bats also may have been the animal from which the virus jumped ship into human beings. Another bit of good news we can cite in this epidemic is the fact that the Chinese government has evidently finally stepped in to shut down the wildlife markets, which are probably the source of this mischief. I know in talking about influenza on this program years ago, we we mentioned that uh, China is the likely source for the future pandemic of influenza because... In China, you will find them housing swine next to ducks, both of which can harbor the flu virus and both of which can swap genes between the two, allowing it to jump ship to humans. And if you throw in a few more mutations along the way that allow human-to-human transfer, we are going to have a major problem. And the current problem we're having is is probably due to these uh, markets they have in China, wildlife markets. 
Last week in China, they, uh, they set forth a permanent ban on the trade in wildlife, or so they say. They note that it is forbidden to hunt, trade, and transport terrestrial wild animals that grow and reproduce naturally in the wild for the purpose of food. Writing in New Scientist magazine, Adam Vaughn noted that his instinct was to applaud the news. For decades, campaigners have been calling for an end to wildlife markets in China, where animals, including those that are sick or disease-laden, are kept caged, often in poor conditions and near to people. The article notes that China doing this all across the country in one fell swoop was a good plan because back in 2002, after the outbreak of the SARS coronavirus, which also came from animals, legal markets were suspended, but people still brought wildlife on the black market and the virus still spread. The different, prov- the different provinces in China implemented bans at different times, meaning poultry prices would be dented in one area, motivating traders to move infected animals elsewhere. The piece notes that uh, the backdrop to all this is that the legal markets in China were never well regulated. Richard Thomas at the Wildlife Trade Monitoring Group Traffic shared a photo with author Adam Vaughn of such a wildlife market where civets, which help spread SARS to humans, sit caged next to biscuits for human consumption. Now, my understanding is that uh, they're not positive that it's bats that transferred the coronavirus to human. Two other candidates might be snakes and pangolins. Pangolins are known as spiny anteaters, extremely interesting animals that are now endangered because the Chinese are so fond of eating them. Before we get into the viruses, let's do another little bit of follow-up. We mentioned last week that a couple had been found after, I guess, getting lost in the bushes for nine days somewhere near Point Reyes Station. And And the current issue of New Scientist has an article about that very thing, getting lost in the wild. They note that people who are truly lost are often convinced they're going to die, and understandably, they are terrified. Trouble is, they then also behave in a way that does not facilitate their being found. The main thrust of this article is is that the most important thing when you're lost is to stop moving, at least for a while. They note that Ralph Bagnold, the pioneer of desert exploration in North Africa back in the 1930s and 40s, once recalled being seized by an extraordinarily powerful impulse to carry on driving in any direction after he lost his way in the western desert in Egypt. The psychological effect had been the cause of nearly every desert disaster of recent years, he wrote. If one can stay still, even for half an hour, and have a meal or smoke, reason returns to work out the problem of location. If you think no one is coming, your first strategy should be to try and retrace your steps This requires patience, which is difficult when you're terrified. It can also be psychologically challenging because it can feel like you're moving further away from safety. Some suggestions Radio Parallax would add would be buy a cheap compass and learn how to use it. Take along along a map if you can get one and learn to use the day and night sky to orient north, south, east, west. If you don't know how to do it, it's surprisingly easy. And I'm going to at this point resist Mr. Marillon's suggestion that I explain what a map is. There is a rumor out there, perhaps unfounded, that there may be places on Earth where you can't get GPS even now. And speaking of staying in place when you're in trouble, well, that's a perfect, turns out that's a perfect segue into our discussion of viruses, because that's what people are being advised to do. If you, if you get symptoms, stay home. Peace in the San Francisco Chronicle by Aaron Adley noted that uh, the East Bay is still in its thick of cold and flu season, and now coronavirus is circulating also 
which is leaving many people with coughs and fevers wondering what may be causing their illness and what they should do about it. The short answer is, statistically speaking, it's probably not coronavirus, but it could be. And as for what to do, well, stay home. The piece notes correctly that symptoms of COVID-19, the illness caused by the new coronavirus, can be difficult, if not impossible, to distinguish from influenza or even a really bad cold or allergies. Or since it's becoming increasingly clear a lot of people are asymptomatic, it may be impossible to distinguish from someone who has a mild cold or no cold. The main symptoms are fever and cough and shortness of breath. As the illness progresses, people with COVID-19 tend not to have the upper respiratory complaints like runny nose and sinus congestion or gastrointestinal issues that often come along with influenza. That said, there have been a few cases of COVID-19 where patients have had all of these symptoms. This is why we doctors have a hard time telling you exactly what you have without doing a test. When asked by some of the thousands and thousands of patients I saw over the years with an upper respiratory ailment, what it is they had, I would generally respond with, you probably have some sort of virus as to whether it's a rhinovirus, an adenovirus, an influenza virus, or any of an, any other XYZ virus, it's hard to say. And since, as people love pointing out, medicine has still been unable to cure the common cold, what you generally would do is focus on the symptoms. Now, if you do have influenza, there are some antivirals specific to it. And uh, as we learned with HIV, even a deadly viral disease can be effectively countered if you do enough research and come up with enough good antivirals, which they're certainly working on with coronavirus. But again, influenza is far more common and kills far more people than coronavirus is, even at the moment as we speak in this uh, winter flu season. And yet, sadly, we don't have a lot of really good antivirals that will cure influenza. It'll help you. You know, if you're really sick, it, you, you want to take it, especially if you're a susceptible population, meaning elderly or with chronic medical conditions. But a miracle cure for coronavirus is probably not around the corner. A vaccine we hope will be. If they do develop one, the anti-vaxxers will refuse to take it, to which I'm tempted to say good, but that would be very unprofessional and very unkind and, and really very wrong. So I won't. But a consensus seems to be emerging that uh, the problems we're having with coronavirus uh, mainly are the result of how we're dealing with coronavirus. I'm holding up a copy of the East Bay Times right now, and the headline on page one is Virus-stricken ship returning to California, with the subheadline Newsom, state of emergency declared in California after the state's first death. And I got a front page from four days later with the headline Virus-stricken ship set to dock today in Oakland. Subheadline, quarantine, 3,535 people on board will be contained, officials say. So I got to say, we do have some provisions uh, apparently uh, in place to where if you're on a ship and somebody down uh, in a berth sea, down the hallway is coughing and may have coronavirus, well, like it or not, expect to be quarantined. Anyway, let me read from this piece by Maggie Angst and Aldo Toledo. As thousands of passengers on the coronavirus-stricken cruise ship Grand Princess prepared to finally begin disembarking at the Port of Oakland, public officials and infectious disease experts were trying to ease concerns of Bay Area residents. At a joint news conference, 
Oakland Mayor Libby Schaaf and Governor Gavin Newsom emphasized that all people aboard the ship will be carefully contained as they come ashore and are sent to various locations outside the city to be quarantined, tested, and in some cases treated for the COVID-19 virus. And it's not so much better in the, the airline industry. United is apparently reducing its flights. Uh, 10% of all domestic trips are going to be cut from United Airlines. A friend of mine just flew up to the Bay Area from San Diego last Saturday, and uh, the Southwest flight that I guess would normally seat 160 had 90 passengers. We did receive an inquiry here at Radio Parallax from Elise asking what the deal was with Iran. And why it is Iran is being so hard hit by coronavirus, well, we don't know. We can't seem to find out any information on that subject. Now, on Bill Maher's program, they did show some people at a shrine, some sort of holy shrine in Iran where they were licking one of the structures. We don't know that it has anything to do with the spread of the virus, but we do know it's not a good idea. You know, like Iran doesn't have enough trouble. According to The Week magazine, nations across the Middle East canceled flights to and from Iraq this week as Iranian officials attempted to downplay the COVID-19 outbreak at a televised news conference intended to reassure the public that Iran had the virus under control. Iraj Harichi, deputy health minister and head of Iran's counter-coronavirus task force, was sweating and looking visibly ill. A day later, he announced he tested positive for COVID-19. And I don't mean to laugh at that, but holy cow, that's going to reassure the public. Officials say that 15 Iranians have died and some 95 are infected. The local media reported that hundreds of hospitals were seeing cases. Schools and cultural centers have been shuttered and panicked citizens are holed up at home, like they're telling us to do. Reformist politician Mahmoud Sadigi tweeted this week that he had the virus and had very little hope to survive. Of course, keep in mind that statement did come from a politician, albeit an Iranian one. But they are talking at this point about canceling the Olympics in Tokyo this year. It does seem clear that around the world, uh, we are not as prepared for a pandemic as we should be. A report released last October by the Global Health Security Index found glaring gaps in readiness. Out of 195 countries surveyed, not one was judged fully prepared to handle a major event. It should be noted that in the U.S. under Donald Trump, the federal budget for both research and response preparations have been cut. And the National Security Council's Global Health Security Unit has been disbanded. And the White House official in charge of pandemic response left his job in 2018 and has not been replaced. I was thoughtfully sent a video clip a few days back by listener Pablo showing the President of the United States at a press conference explaining how it was that he just, he just, the doctors were amazed at how much he knew about all of this and that he claimed that they seemed to perceive in him just a natural ability to, to, to grasp the facts in the case. Trump suggested, hey, you know, maybe I should have become a doctor instead of a president. And you know, for once, that's something that he said we can really get behind on this program. Admittedly, a really bad, stupid doctor can do a lot of harm. But we'd have to say a really bad, stupid president can do a lot more. Francisco's declaring an emergency. Riverside County's declaring a health emergency. I guess a lot of that's kind of a political ploy because when you declare an emergency, you're then eligible for certain aid that can come in. I don't know. 
As reported on this program last week, a key datum that we don't yet have is how many people truly suffer fatalities out of the number of people who have contracted the virus. If you run into influenza, the stats say your chances of dying from it are, you know, a 20th to a 10th of a percent. So when the initial reports coming out of China are something like a 3% fatality rate, the natural reaction is to go, oh my God, 30 times worse than influenza? The truth is, that may not be the case at all. We just don't know. We certainly don't want to downplay the, the, the grave threat that a pandemic can pose to the human population. The Spanish flu back in 1918 killed people by the tens of millions. Probably as many lives were lost from the virus as were lost in World War I. That says a lot. But thankfully, it does not appear we're facing anything like that at the current time. Anyway, in the not-too-distant future, we will hopefully have better data on, uh, you know, the infectivity of the disease, how long people remain infectious. And as you're waiting for all that data to come in, remember to wash your hands. That seems to be the number one thing everyone's being advised to do. Not always possible, especially when you cannot find hand sanitizer. And since that has now been picked clean from the stores, you know, you're going to have to stick to just plain old soap and water. I was buying some items in my local dollar store a few days ago. I was sort of dismayed and amused to note that someone went into that store where they had 500 bottles of hand sanitizer and bought every single one. Why? Well, he owned a factory back in China and he was sending it back to China to sanitize the hands back there. Well, it was nice of him to try and take care of his employees back home, but holy mackerel. I also uh, had the misfortune of visiting a Costco uh, the day before that. And I'm unable to explain why it is people are rushing to Costco to stock up on toilet paper and bottled water. No matter what kind of public health emergency we seem to be facing, the water supply doesn't appear to be threatened. And although it's, it's not clear whether it's possible for this virus to be spread through fecal contamination, so far that does not appear to be the case. So why is everybody buying toilet paper? All right, we've got a few minutes left in the show. Let's talk about other stuff. We've been reading from some headlines lately, and there's one I can't resist from New Scientist. Headline, nanoparticle quantum chilled to near absolute zero. I have to confess, the article didn't interest me at all, but I did like the headline because in my mind that compared with headless body found in topless bar, which I think of as a rather amusing meme from the 80s. And it appears Radio Parallax and The Nation has a new Darwin Award winner. Perhaps you read the report that Daredevil stuntman Mad Mike Hughes died last week when his homemade steam-powered rocket nosedived into the desert, ending his mission to prove that the Earth is flat. Madman Hughes, age 64, hoped to blast 5,000 feet into the sky and parachute to safety, but his drag chute tore up on takeoff. He flew in a long arc, he flew in a long arc and crashed. This stunt was sponsored by the Research Flat Earth Group and were meant to generate funding for Hughes' dream of a raccoon, a rocket balloon that would launch him 62 miles into the edge of space where he hoped to photograph the shape of the planet. I have to admit, that does give me a flashback to, back to very small childhood where I remember seeing a photograph from a high-altitude rocket in one of my dad's books. 
The caption reported excitedly that you could see the curvature of the earth in the photograph. Well, alas, it will not be for Mad Mike. He had set the Guinness World Record in 2002 for jumping a stretch limousine. In case you're keeping score, he went 103 feet. After which he moved to rockets. He soared 1,800 feet in 2018. Said at the time, I don't believe in science. You start finding these places that's flat on this planet. Kansas is flat, I'm telling you. And this era we live in of marriage equality apparently has a new wrinkle. Lawmakers in Utah are reportedly moving closer toward decriminalizing polygamy among consenting adults. A bill to change polygamy from a felony to an infraction akin to a traffic violation passed the state Senate unanimously. Fundamentalist Mormons, numbering about 30,000 across the western U.S., believe polygamy is rewarded in heaven. Republican State Senator Deidre Henderson Republican State Senator Deidre Henderson said we need to stop marginalizing a whole group of people in our state. Apparently, the Mormon Church's torment over modernizing also played out last week at Brigham Young University, where a ban on displays of homosexual feelings, such as same-sex holding of hands or kissing, was lifted. There's been a lot in the news lately about microplastics and how the pollution seems to be going everywhere in the world, and I sure got a lesson in that in the last month. guy in my neighborhood's got a bunch of, well, plastic bins, plastic tarps, plastic this or that that have been well, sitting around in, in the sun for the past uh, many decades. In going over to help uh, clean this stuff up, I've been astonished to find that it just crumbles into little itty bits. Now, the stuff we're gathering up is going to eventually wind up in a landfill where presumably it'll be not trickling out into the environment. But, well, when I think of all that plastic waste that's out there breaking down into little itty bits, it's it's a sobering thought. This stuff is entering the food chain, and we don't know what it's going to do. Perhaps it won't be as bad as many fear. You know, hope, hope springs eternal. And on a somewhat more amusing note, I discovered that although I didn't really realize it, I was producing antimatter in my very own home. And chances are, dear listener, you are too. How did I do it? Well, I went down to the local market and I bought some bananas. Bananas, as you may or may not be aware, tend to be high in potassium. Potassium has more than one isotope. Most potassium is potassium-39, which is very stable. A small fraction of potassium is potassium-40, which is radioactive. And wouldn't you know it, when those atoms of potassium-40 break down, they emit a positron in the form of a beta particle. A positron is just like an electron, except that it's positively charged, hence the name. Let loose a positron in the world and it won't travel very far before it bumps into an electron. And when it does that, they annihilate each other and produce pure energy in the form of a gamma ray. Yes, your bananas are producing gamma rays. Size banana. And if you've got a medium-sized banana in your kitchen, it's producing one maybe every 75 minutes. Now, since gamma rays are higher energy than X-rays, and therefore not something you want to bump into a lot of, we are saved by the fact that this electron-positron annihilation doesn't really produce very much energy. It's described as considerably less than one millionth the energy of a flying mosquito. Anyway, when we think of antimatter, 
We tend to think of, you know, like a warp drive on Star Trek. Something very exotic. But really, it's no more exotic than a piece of fruit. And rather amazingly, medical science has learned how to use antimatter to help diagnose things in your own body. That's how a PET scanner works. Swallow some radi- you swallow some radioactive tracer when it undergoes a decay and releases that beta particle, and it goes off and gets annihilated. The energy can be detected by a machine and therefore worked backward to de- derive an image of your insides. Pretty cool. Mr. Merlin asks at this point uh, if eating bananas and with all this energy involved is why gorillas and chimpanzees are so strong, you know, like the Hulk. And my answer to that is no. Yes, we have no bananas. We have no bananas today. We string beans and onions, cabanas and scallions, and all kinds of fruit and say, We have an old-fashioned tomato. Long Island potato. But yes, we have no bananas. That about does it for today's program, which was produced by Edward McMillan, who right now is reaching for a banana. I'm Douglas Everett. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. Be sure to tune in again next week, and in the meantime, wash your hands. We got a 64,000 of watermelon. We don't sell any, but the guy we buy them from, Mamma Mia, does he sell a watermelon? But the, yes, we know you got it, bananas. Hey, why you We know you got it, bananas today. Yes, we have no bananas. What?